Join us today during the Jeep Celebration event. Right now, get 20% below MSRP for an average of 15178 under MSRP on the purchase of a 2023 Jeep Grand Cherokee Overland 4xe or Summit 4xe. Not compatible with lease offers or with any other consumer incentive offers. 15,178 average based on 20% below average MSRP from all 2023 Grand Cherokee Overland 4xE and Summit 4xE models in dealer stock. Residency restrictions apply. Take retail delivery from dealer stock by 4-1. Jeep is a registered trademark. You're listening to the Archaeology Podcast Network. You're listening to the Archaeology Show. TAS goes behind the headlines to bring you the real stories about archaeology and the history around us. Welcome to the podcast. Hello and welcome to the Archaeology Podcast, episode 35. I'm Chris Webster. And I'm April Camp Whitaker. On today's show, we will uh, look at the archaeology of the night with Nancy Gonlin and April Noel. Let's dig a little deeper. All right, welcome to the show, everyone. So my co-host, April Camp Whitaker, may or may not join us today. The uh, internet and computer gods are not smiling on Arizona right now, so... We'll see if she joins us. If she does, we'll bring her in and and, uh, and announce her. But um, if she doesn't, then it's just going to be me, which is interesting because April brought this interview to us and uh, she's somewhat loosely involved with her family uh, and this book. So she has a lot more knowledge on it. So I'm going to kind of wing it today. But my guests today are the editors of this book and contributors, Nancy Gonlin and April Noel. How's it going? Going great. Thanks for having us. Yeah, thank you. Okay, so before we get started, let's introduce you guys to the audience, and we'll just you know say a little bit about yourself and uh, you know where you are, so they understand where we're coming from. And Nancy, why don't you go ahead and start? Hi, I'm uh, Nancy Gonlin, and I've got a PhD in anthropology from Penn State. I'm a senior associate professor at Bellevue College. I've taught here for about twenty years or so. And it's a teaching college, so I really enjoy all of the classes and students that I have. And I'm a Mesoamerican archaeologist, so I have done my field work in Mexico and Honduras and El Salvador. Nice, nice. Okay. And that's Bellevue, Washington for all those people Yes, it's on the Bellevue, Coast. Washington. <laughs> that's near right. Near Seattle. That's right. That's right. And April, go ahead. Hi, I'm uh, April Noel. I did my PhD at the University of Pennsylvania, and I'm professor of anthropology at uh, the University of Victoria in Victoria, BC, Canada. And uh, I am a Paleolithic archaeologist, so I specialize in the archaeology of our human ancestors. Uh, I work, I've been working for the last 20 years or so in Jordan and before that in France. And I specialize in things like the origins of language, the origins of art, and the emergence of the modern mind. Okay, fantastic. So the book that we're going to talk about, and then the really the, the concepts within the book that we're going to talk about, is called Archaeology of the Night, Life After Dark in the Ancient World, and it's by University Press of Colorado. So check that out. We'll have links to that in the show notes, so you don't have to go out and check it out right now, but we'll have links in the show notes. So why don't we start off by just talking about, so this, this is an edited volume, first off, and why don't we talk about what the book is about, what an edited volume means, and um, and... And then we'll get into a little bit more about the book. So, Nancy, why don't you go ahead and tell us about that? Sure. What the book is about is how ancient people lived at night and how they navigated the dark, which is very different from what 
we do today. We have so much lighting and that drowns out a lot of the stars. And the night sky was extremely important to people in the past and still to many people today. And what an edited volume means is that April and I are responsible for the content in terms of the quality and the chapters that we chose and we do the editing of each chapter, but we did not write each of the chapters because we are not experts in some of the areas of that we wanted to portray in this book. So, for example, we really wanted to have an expert on the Southwest. So, we were fortunate to have Dr. Catherine Kemp and Dr. John Whitaker of Grinnell College contribute a chapter on the Southwest and the Sinagua people. So, there are 18 chapters in the book. There is also a foreword that is written by Jerry Moore, who is a preeminent archaeologist of the Peruvian area. And then there is an afterword as well, written by the eminent archaeologist, Dr. Meg Conkey of UC Berkeley, and she wraps up the topic. But we've got an introduction to the topic with that foreword and then an introductory chapter that April and I co-authored. We've got a section on what we call nightscapes. We've got a section on the night sky. And then we've got another section on nocturnal ritual and ideology and then a final section on nighttime practices or what did people do at night. Nice. And that's one of the first things I wanted to to, uh, to mention is that this is not necessarily a book on archaeoastronomy. This isn't a book on necessarily yeah, reading the night sky or even structures no. organized in a way to like reflect the sky or something like that. No, I think we really wanted to, I mean, that would be, that's obviously one aspect of it. So uh, we do have people talking about how Polynesians navigated using the stars and and we talk about solar eclipses and and darkness and 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 that kind of thing as well but we really wanted to broaden what we think about when we think about the the nighttime i think for a lot of people uh in in our daily lives today we think of the nighttime as being a time for sleep that everything kind of ends and what we were finding in our research and from talking to the the authors of the different chapters was in fact that you know there's a whole other world that that comes to life at night so not only in the natural world where you have some you know only some animals coming out and some flowers blooming but you know the night shift starts so a lot of people actually start their their day, if you will, in the evening, they go, they, they engage in all different kinds of work. Other people are, are engaging in, in rituals and so on. And so we, we realized that the more we looked, um, the more complex and rich and really exciting uh, nighttime was for people in the past. Especially for those ancient Romans. They were partiers at night. If you read Glenn Story's chapter on ancient Rome, you will get a lot of information. And modern humans today are not the first ones to be night owls and party through the night. This is goes mm-hmm. way back, thousands of years. Yeah, it, and even, even more recent than that, it just reminded me of a book I read a couple of years ago called Don't Sleep There Are Snakes by Daniel Everett. <laughs> and I know in that, it's really great, right? And in that book, he actually started as a as a missionary, and he went to some tribe down in South America, like they all do, and tried to basically learn that his his he had a background in linguistics too, and his idea was to learn their language, and then of course translate the Bible into their language, and then convert them into right. upstanding citizens. Right? So, <laughs> oh goodness. Um, <laughs> well, 
it has a happy ending from an anthropological standpoint. He actually ended up leaving his church and staying down there for a long time and basically just learning from them. And that's what this whole book is about. And, but one of the things that stuck out with me is they don't have any natural, like, enemies really there's no other real tribes around there they just kind of live and eat and do things and they don't really they don't have any exports of course with people around them they don't really trade and they don't have a cycle like we do they they, if somebody brings in food they eat it until it's gone and that might be until three o'clock in the morning and they just sleep when they want to and they get up when they want to and that's what one of the things him and his family had a hard time adjusting to was they had a very active nighttime activity but it wasn't it wasn't separated between night and day it was just it happens to be night because that's where we're at and we have different nighttime activities when we're doing these things at night and it was just a really interesting way to look at it hmm, feasting behavior <laughs> exactly yeah exactly <laughs> well, thinking about that i was thinking about glenn story's uh, chapter on on the romans and one of the things that really struck me is what is what you're saying chris is that i sort of think about nighttime as or in terms of our sleep patterns being fairly regulated, but there is really a cultural component to it for sure. And he talks about with uh, in Rome how there was first sleep and second sleep, and that there would be time in between for um, you know for everything from you know sex to writing to doing other kinds of work to whatever. And it and it was just a normal sort of pattern that they would break it into these two different sections or two different types of sleep. That's Mm -hmm. one thing I learned a lot about in researching for this book is that sleep varies and sleep is a cultural pattern and a cultural practice. And not everybody sleeps the same way, where you sleep, how you sleep, when you sleep, with whom you sleep. Those are all culturally patterned, of course, individually patterned as well. And there are two historians of Europe, Roger Eckerch and Craig Koslowski, who have written a lot about this first sleep and second sleep and how modern humans today don't seem to do that, but yet we are expected to sleep eight hours straight through. And if you don't, there's something wrong mm-hmm. with you. That's so interesting. I, I listen to a lot of um, like entrepreneur and business-like podcasts as well. And uh, the biggest thing right now that everybody's saying is you've got to get eight hours of sleep. They're like, now, what they're saying is, you know, they're, they're saying it as you need to get eight hours of continuous sleep. They are saying that. Um, but you're right. It is a kind of a cultural construct to even say that. I guess more to their point is they're saying people are only getting four or five hours of total sleep in a 24-hour period. So you need to try to get eight. But I'm not sure if eight hours within a within a 24-hour period would be just as effective as eight hours of, of straight sleep. I can vouch sure. for that. <laughs> <laughs> I'm sure you too. You can too, April. Yeah. <laughs> exactly. <laughs> All right. So why, why did you guys want this book to exist? Is there nothing out there that's like this, like this sort of volume that, uh, that has all these things in one place? Uh, as far as I know, we're really the first people to address the archaeology of night. I mean, there are people who have written um, about the night from different perspectives, from a historical perspective, uh, anthropological perspective, but really in terms of an archaeology of night, uh, Nan and I were the, the first ones. Um, 
I'll, I'll turn it over to Nan because it was really her idea and, and she brought me on board and, and how that happened is kind of funny, but I'll let you, maybe Nan start with how you came up with the idea originally. Okay, so there I was, being a good scientist, <laughs> reading a book at night, doing some research, sitting by the fire. Not, not no, not sleeping. <laughs> not even first sleep. <laughs> but with a wine glass in hand. And I'm the, the more wine that I'm drinking, I'm thinking... Well, wait a minute. I am an archaeologist. I'm looking around my house and I'm sitting in a different space than I do during the day. I'm using different artifacts. There are different features around me, like the fireplace. And I said, as an archaeologist, um, we should explore this because we talk about daily lives and daily practices. And those don't necessarily exclude the night, but they're not explicit about incorporating the night. And the more I thought about it, I thought, well, I can't think of anything offhand that I know about. So I googled archaeology of the night, nothing. Nocturnal archaeology, nothing. Darkness in archaeology. And actually a couple things came up like Marion Dowd's uh, co-authored or co-edited volume. And, but mm-hmm. that was a little different. Archaeology of darkness is different than archaeology of the night. So the mm-hmm. more I looked and the more I explored, I could not find anything. And the next day I had lunch with a good friend of mine, Christine Dixon, who's also a Mesoamerican archaeologist. And I bounced this idea off her. And she said, um, you're nuts. Of course, daily practices includes <laughs> the night. And I said, but I can't find anything. So I Googled my, um, I Googled some more synonyms there and still not coming up with anything. And then I emailed my advisor from Penn State, David Webster. And I said, what do you know about the archaeology of the night? And he said, nothing. It doesn't exist. Nobody researches Hmm. that and or something like that. But meaning that he had not heard of this at all ever. So in comes April. <laughs> we, had, I, we had both just been coming back from the SAA meetings, the Society for American Archaeology meetings in uh, in Memphis, I think it was. And just by accident, we ended up being seated next to each other. And we're both very chatty, friendly people. So we started talking. And then I pulled out my laptop because we started talking about what papers we had given and I pulled out my laptop to show her some slides from a, a paper I'd given with a, a friend of mine, Melanie Chang, uh, on um, basically paleoporn, <laughs> how, we, how we feel comfortable using the term pornography to describe Ice Age figurines and why that's wrong. And, uh, and, the, and the slides were quite funny. And so we ended up having a really good laugh together about a lot of the, about, you know, all of these things. And I guess it wasn't much longer, maybe a couple of months after where Nan contacted me and uh, asked if I would be interested in, in exploring the topic of the night together because um, she thought maybe based on my other talk that I might be someone who would be interested in something a little a little unusual, a little out of the box. And, um, and at first I wasn't sure that I had anything to say about the night because I thought, what do I know about the night in the Ice Age? And then the more I thought about it, the more uh, interested I got, the more I thought, this is super exciting. Uh, and then 
Once I was on board, we had to start trying to convince our colleagues uh, to come on board and to write chapters for us. You know, we had sort of an, an ideal of the uh, time and space grids that we wanted to um, to cover. And uh, we just started sending out invitations to people. And, you know, Nan can confirm this. Most people turned us down. A lot of them. <laughs> In our yes. Group. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> and even even some of our close friends turned us like, down. Oh, it's like you are not, April Camp Whitaker's mom turned us down. We worked on her so, though. Yeah. We worked on her, and then she, and then you know um, she and John put together a fabulous chapter, which you know we're so grateful to have. But yeah, it took a little convincing, uh, and then I think people when they started to really think about it. Uh, started to find all kinds of interesting, creative, innovative ways to ask questions about the night. And then everyone started to get so excited about the chapters they were they were writing for us that it was such a, a fun project to, to be working on. This is mm-hmm. definitely one of the most fun projects I've ever worked on. And part of it is because of working with April. She's just absolutely sensational to work with and has the greatest sense of humor. And, and she can put up with me, so... <laughs> that's awesome so do you guys i was going to ask a a little more about how you found people to do this um because like you mentioned with a with a few of your examples you know people hadn't even thought about it and it actually turned you down but you you must have you must have had um i guess either a network of people that you were you were just calling and and uh i hate to say pestering yeah, but that's yeah, what we yeah. do we yeah. people write for us right yeah, yeah. have, have yeah. you heard of cold calling <laughs> oh yeah <laughs> but i guess i guess when you have to do that what I, the question i'm really getting at is how did you decide with without even really knowing what you were even talking about because nobody's actually studied this how did you decide who to even cold call to say hey do you want to take what you're doing and maybe talk about the archaeology of the night and, and kind of flip it a little bit? Well, April and I talked about this and we wanted global representation because we thought we could best illustrate this new perspective of the archaeology of the night by having archaeologists from all over the world contribute to the topic. So we wanted people who specialized in different times and different places. So we kind of came up with a list and some of the people she knew, some of the people I knew, and some people we didn't know at all. So that's where the cold calling came in. And some of these people are really big names in archaeology, like um, Anthony Avini. And I know his work, but I had never met him. Nevertheless, I just Mm -hmm. sent him an email and of course he was interested. He is a premier archaeoastronomer. So fortunately, he was on board and we we're very grateful for that. And then, of course, April did a lot of politicking on her end with her connections. Yeah, a number of the people who are uh, in the chapter of people uh, in the book, sorry, are people that either I went to grad school with or I've done other projects with or um, in the case of Erin McGuire, someone I work with, she she wrote a chapter on um, her experimental work with Viking lamps. And uh, in fact, now she's going to be having, um, because this is a real interest of hers, the experimental archaeology aspect, she's going to do a whole course on experimental archaeology, um, sort of, you know, building on some of this stuff that she did for this chapter. So, yeah, so we just kind of put people together um, that way. And, uh, and we also, you know, we went to people that we thought were sort of very interested in, in archaeological theory as well. And we didn't, um, as I say, always get uh, people on board who I thought 
might be up for the challenge, you know, but, uh, but in the end, uh, we ended up with such a, a great um, list of authors. And some people have said to me, oh, well, why don't you have someone from, you know, this region or, or that time? And we, and all I can say is that we tried, we, we did send out one. And yeah, we really tried. <laughs> yes. <laughs> we spent months trying to get people on board and convince them and like, well, what are you talking about? It's like, well, what, we're not sure what we're talking about yet. <laughs> but we had to develop this perspective and then we had to convince other people to be on board with it. And that was one of the biggest challenges. But now that the book has come out, so many of our authors have emailed us and said, oh, my gosh, this is fantastic. Thank you nice. for making me part of this groundbreaking work. And Yeah, and people want to, you know, I think now people are also talking to us about how they can rethink their work a little bit, the work that they're doing in light mm-hmm. of this. So. That's great. And we have a lot more questions for you guys, but I think uh, as we go to break here, we'll just leave everybody with one thought. I think we should just turn this into a podcast and it's going to be called Archaeology After Dark. But I don't know. <laughs> with wine. <laughs> with wine. Yes. <laughs> All right. Back in a second. You've worked hard for what you have. Your money, your assets, your 401k and home. Isn't it all worth protecting? Nearly one in four consumers have been a victim of identity theft. LifeLock Ultimate Plus helps protect your finances with up to $3 million in reimbursement. LifeLock alerts you to identity threats you might miss. And if your identity is stolen, your dedicated U.S.-based restoration specialist will work to fix it. Let LifeLock help protect what you've worked so hard for. Save 25% off your first year on LifeLock Ultimate Plus at LifeLock.com aware. Terms apply. Everybody in your crew identifies as either Big Mac Burger, McNuggets, or McCrispy Sandwich. But you're the filet fish Sandwich all day. That crispy fish, that savory tartar sauce, that melty cheese, that pillowy bun. Yeah, you get it. Every time. And if you love the filet of fish right now you can catch two of the classics you love for just $6. Limited time only. Price and participation may vary. Cannot be combined with any other offer. Single item at regular price. Ba-da-ba-ba-ba. Okay, we are back on the Archaeology Show, episode 35. And we have had some uh, technical difficulties when you've got people in... uh, three different states and, and two countries trying to talk uh, on a single system, then things happen. But we have regained control over the system, and we have April Camp Whitaker on the line. So, April, thanks for uh, thanks for joining in at least the second segment of the podcast. Oh, I was excited I wasn't here for the first. <laughs> but she did hear a lot of it as she was working through her technical difficulties, so that's good. Um, she, we, she, we just couldn't hear her, so that was kind of a weird thing. But So I'm going to just continue on here, and I had a question that I wanted to get out uh, early on in this segment before we kind of diverge away from this topic when we, we kind of glossed over and, and sort of touched on sleep and sleep cycles and things like that in the first segment. So I wanted to ask, what are in general do we think sleep cycles are tied to? Because when I imagine it, it's more tied to things like things that you can only do during the day, let's say, that determine that you're going to sleep at night, like agriculture and, um, you know, uh, tending to animals and things like that would be daytime things. So if you're doing that all day, then you're probably by default going to sleep all night. So um, what do we think about that as an idea? Maybe I'll just jump in, Nan. And uh, I, I think that's true. I think you know, in a lot of ways, we think about agriculture as being something tied to the day in that people uh, get up with the crack of dawn to feed animals or you know do other, other tasks as they need to. Um, 
But what we learned or what it was surprised to me uh, was actually some people do agriculture at night. And one of the chapters that we have by uh, one of our authors, Smitty Nathan, uh, and her chapter was called Midnight at the Oasis, Past and Present Agricultural Activities in Oman. And she talked about how in some really hot climates like Oman, you might actually want to do some of your agricultural practices uh, like irrigation at night because, uh, in fact, your your water doesn't, when you're irrigating your crops, your water doesn't evaporate as quickly. So, in fact, they were doing some of their crop tending um, at night, which is really not how we would picture agriculture normally. It's it's just, you know, like I mentioned that book, mm-hmm. and then we'll link to that other book in the show notes too, that Daniel Everett book with those, uh, that tribe that really didn't have agriculture or anything like that. So their, their entire lifestyle was not based on day or night. They mm-hmm. just had, you know, whatever it happened to be, it happened to be whatever they were doing. So that was interesting. Um, April Camp Whitaker, I'm sure you're burning with questions, so we'll just throw it over to you. <laughs> well, I'm always burning questions, but you know what? That idea of uh, sleep uh, cycles also, you know, I'm from Phoenix, and we have flood irrigation still for households, and you can't control when you get your water. And so you're up in the middle of the night sometimes, irrigating your yard, your crops, and interacting with neighbors really differently when you see them at 3 a.m. in their pajamas than you would when you see them at 5 p.m. coming home from work. And so there is this idea that the nighttime and these different social bonds that are created, even through common acts like agriculture or... um, So that was really interesting to think about. Um, Mm -hmm. My husband's family is from India, and sometimes there are water shortages. And sometimes you can have water from 3 to 5 a.m. So you better be up to get it. Yeah. The night changes and it becomes your daytime um, for those activities that normally you don't have control over. Um, Yeah. So one of the things that I thought was really interesting is how this ties into kind of the archaeology of the senses. You know, where archaeologists have been thinking a lot more about things like soundscapes and smellscapes. um, And now all of a sudden here you guys are thinking about sleepscapes or nightscapes. and I wonder if you talk a little bit more about how these are all kind of converging in some of the articles and research that you guys are drawing on. This is a theme that runs through a lot of the chapters in this volume. And if you think about humans and our evolution as primates, our visual sense predominates. But at night, other senses take over because our vision changes and your um, actually your mother and father talk about this in their chapter uh, about the difference between cones and rods and which one takes over at night and how it affects our vision at night you can actually hear better or it seems that way so in terms of investigating other senses in archaeology we have for a very long time privileged our vision but now we are switching to other kinds of senses huh that's really interesting so I mean, obviously, just thinking, too, about night and this idea that sound moves differently, um, how, as, as listeners, since, you know, I always forget and I always try to say readers, but as listeners, how does this potentially impact their experiences or our experiences of archaeological sites even now? You know, if we go out to, you know, a famous archaeological site during the day, and go out again in the evening or at night, um, you know, what kinds of things might change and how might we still be experiencing kind of these fluctuating nightscapes and 
experiences? I, I think that's a really good question because I think that's part of why we have a bias towards the day when, as archaeologists, we're doing our research because we tend to visit uh, our site and other people's sites during the day. Um, and yet I, I'm thinking about when I've worked, when I work in Jordan, I sometimes go to the site of Petra, uh, especially if I have friends visiting. And on occasion, we'll do a visit of Petra, you know, called Petra by night. And you walk from the gates at Petra um, all the way, all the way through the site. And they've lined little candles along the, um, the walkways. And then you get to the souk area and they give you uh, tea and there's music and, and so on. And I'm always struck by that, about how different the site feels because it's, the air is cooler. Um, I mean, there's still people talking, but it's much, much quieter. People have sort of a sense of, of reverence about the place. Like there's a, I don't know how to say it other than there's a bit more of a, a sense of, of, of the sacred a little bit as people are walking through this, this space and looking at this incredible architecture that's been hewn out of the rock and the, the candles that they have placed all along these walkways change the, changes the colors um, and as you were saying before, you interact with people differently at night than you would during the day. And so for me, I think it would be incredible for there. I mean, I'm sure there are other examples where you can visit sites at night. I know that. Um, but it might be something that if we as archaeologists and also the general public could do more often, I think it would really change our understanding of, of how people use this space. It feels more primal, if I may use that word, because you're more in touch with the site itself. You have to be aware of the ground beneath you because maybe you can't see it. So you get a very different feeling, as April was saying, and I agree with you that there's a certain reverence there that doesn't exist during the day. It's interesting. It's almost like at night, you know, we're dreaming, we're processing data and information sensory and otherwise a little bit differently. And at night, mm-hmm. you know, when I've been out at archaeological sites at night, it's almost like your imagination can take over a little bit more. And Good way of putting it. Yeah, we're able to visualize that past and kind of reconstruct the buildings in our mind, maybe because we can't see them as much clearly with our eyes. That makes sense. Because you can more you can more clearly see if I may say that <laughs> uh, what, what people might have been doing or how it would have felt to live at that particular in that particular community and instead of an archaeological site it becomes a house or a temple you know i think that's always one of the challenges of archaeology is you know we're not left with a complete thing you know we're left with this fragmentary record and little pieces and clips um, and so being able to reconstruct what's really there so thinking even about the night how do you how do you handle that you know how do you in your writing eliminate some of the modern impacts you know how much would you know the acropolis have shadowed out or cast light um how bright would the past have been how noisy how do you recreate those when now we're visiting empty and abandoned spaces one thing that i thought of in my in my own work thinking about um the the upper paleolithic so the ice age you know i've i've was in my imagination, whenever I think about people sitting, you know, early hominins sitting around um, 
campfires and so on. My in my head, I have this vision of a of a a sky full of sparkling stars, you know, glittering stars, that kind of thing. And the more I started to do research and to talk to um, a colleague of mine, Carlos Cordova, who is um, a geoarchaeologist, and to ask him questions um, about the night, uh, I realized that especially during certain parts of the Ice Age, um, it would have been so arid that there would have been so much, uh, the environment would have been something called uh, that we call a mammoth steppe, which is there's no real analogs today for this. And it was such an arid time and there was so much dust in the air and so on that the skies, even at night, would have been a lot hazier than we normally think of. And I had to really change the, the picture I had in my head of what it would be like to be sitting around this campfire at night and, and, and looking up. So, yeah, there's all kinds of things that it starts to make you think about when you have to think about recreating uh, recreating the night, and for me, that was one of the one of the things that also occurred to me. And my specialty is the classic Maya. And during certain times of the year, fields would be cleared for planting by slash and burn. So during that time period, the air would be full of smoke, and it would not be very likely that you would be able to see the stars or the Milky Way like you had previously. And then, of course, in tropical areas, you have uh, the rainy season. Mm -hmm. And with the cloud cover, it would be also difficult during certain time periods as well. So it's not a monolithic thing. We should not picture this idealistic, uh, the, the past was all dark and what are we doing to it today? Although, of course, we are doing a lot yeah. to eliminate the dark. That's a whole different subject. <laughs> but we can think of it differently with the different nighttime practices and also daytime practices that affected the night. That's really, it, that's really interesting to think about. Because, you know, when you visit like the site I work at in southeastern Colorado, when we visit it today, there's no one there. Um, and so when you, you know, hang out and you watch the stars, it's really easy to automatically recreate sort of this scene, but with buildings or maybe people, but to sort of forget all the noise and chaos and light that happens even at night. You know, when you have um, thousands of people living in a one mile space, you know, you hear people breathing, you hear people snoring and getting up in the night and moving around and all of those subtle nighttime activities that are really easy to erase from the record because we don't necessarily see them. And dog dogs barking yeah. and insects buzzing, all of those kinds of things. Yeah, that's just really hard to recreate. You know, at the same time, though, we have the same sorts of challenges for the daytime, but we don't really see them as obstacles or we don't, we don't maybe, yeah, we don't worry about them as much. But you know, so I think for a lot of um, our colleagues, recreating the night was difficult. You know, we don't dig up n night, and I'm saying that in quotes, but we don't dig up day either. We're still making inferences, um, whether we're aware of them or not, and yet they're not any more difficult than doing it for the nighttime, really. But we just have to sort of switch our way of, of thinking about it. So how much did working on this volume about the night change how you think about day and the archaeology of the daytime? 
it changed it drastically for me <laughs> because I didn't realize all of these a priori assumptions that I have about the day. Right. I don't have to prove that something was used during the day. Why should I have to prove that it was used during the night? Well, I had to in this case because this was a new perspective and people are saying, well, where's the evidence? But they never said that for the day. Sure. Is it possible that they weren't? Well, I, I guess when we see like recreations and sketches and things like that, things are often presented, you know, in the day because we like to be able to see them in these sorts of circumstances. But is it possible that there wasn't a day and a night in the interpretation until you brought up the question of the night? You know what I mean? Like people weren't even thinking. Uh, specifically, necessarily, I'm trying to think of the archaeology I've done here in this country and especially here in the Great Basin in the last few years. Am I even thinking of day and night when I see stuff or is it maybe just a bias in my head and I'm just assuming that? Um, but now when I look at stuff, I'm going to be thinking, well, you know, can we assign some sort of temporal significance to this in just a 24 hour period, you know? Like, did the question exist before you asked it is my real question. <laughs> that's, that's very philosophical. Right? <laughs> might need more coffee to... <laughs> I was just reaching for my tea. <laughs> well, you know what I mean? If people weren't really thinking about a day and a night until you said, hey, what about the archaeology of the night? Then they started looking their, at their stuff at, a little more clearly, like, or maybe a little more cloudy and saying... Well, now I don't really know. I guess I was my logical assumption was day, but I wasn't really actually saying that, you know, because it was just inferred maybe or maybe you were thinking that. Definitely a lot of inference. And I came up with this catchy little phrase that I ran by April. And if you think about what a carbon footprint is, what about the nocturnal footprint? Mm -hmm. And modern humans have this huge nocturnal footprint that can be viewed from outer space. It's so big. Mm -hmm. And if you look at the nocturnal footprint of the past, then this is material evidence produced directly or indirectly from nocturnal human activities that we can recover in the archaeological record. Okay, that that is a really great point to stop on because that was going to be one of my next big questions is really talking about the archaeology and the material culture of the night, but we're right up against a break. So I think we're going to take that break so we can talk about that unobstructed. Um, in the meantime, if you're interested in supporting shows like this and the Archaeology Podcast Network, go to arcpodnet.com forward slash members to see how you can support us and uh, maybe get a coffee mug and a t-shirt depending on what you're doing. So, all right, we'll be back in a second. Waiting on a tax return? Hopefully it ends up in your hands. Fraudulent tax returns due to identity theft increased by 30% in 2023. If you're in a bind this tax season, LifeLock can help. Our U.S.-based restoration specialists are experts dedicated to helping solve your identity theft issues. And all LifeLock plans are backed by the Million Dollar Protection Package. So we'll reimburse you up to the limits of your plan if you lose money due to identity theft. Help protect your information this tax season with LifeLock. Save up to 25% your first year at LifeLock.com aware. Pulling up to Mickey D's just for drinks? Oh yeah, that's me. Nothing extra, just perfection and a straw. Coming in hot for the coldest cups on the block. Because there are drinks. Then there are drinks from McDonald's. Mix things up with any size lemonade or sweet tea for $1.49. Perfect with our classic fries. Price and participation may vary. Cannot be combined with any other offer. Ba-da-ba-ba-ba. Okay, we're back for our final segment on the Archaeology Show, episode 35. And we're still talking to April Noel and Nancy Gonlin about 
Archaeology of the Night, their latest uh, their latest volume that they've put out. So one of the things you guys started to talk about right at the end was the actual archaeology of the night. We've kind of been leading up to it, but what I want to know as like as like a field archaeologist, somebody who you know looks for material culture, looks for actual things that were altered or created or affected by humans in some way or another. What are some of the things that that either you in your own research or the people that wrote in your chapters, what are some of the things they're starting to recognize as as archaeological either features or artifacts or some other some other material culture that you can actually tie to the night? Um, I mean, right now, if you were to look around you, I would say, hey, I see a flashlight and a lamp and light emitting things are clearly tied to darkness, but not necessarily the night. Um you know, I'm in a I'm in a room that would be pitch dark right now if I didn't have lights on, but that doesn't mean it's nighttime. It's broad daylight out. So, so what are some things you guys can point to, or your authors can point to, that are that are really archaeology of the night? Well, one of those does have to do with illumination, and mm-hmm. there's something called the anthropology of luminosity, and how mm-hmm. different lighting affects us, and how different lighting is used for different kinds of tasks, and different lighting is used at different times of the day for different moods. And we can find archaeological evidence of different kinds of lighting practices. There's a chapter, for example, on ancient Egypt by Megan Strong, and she talks about artificial light in the New Kingdom and how that was a transformative aspect. And then I have a chapter coming out in my next book on illumination among the classic Maya and what kind of evidence do we have. Torches are portrayed on ceramic vessels that show rituals or other kinds of political gatherings that took place at night. You have hearths, which are a very obvious sort of source of light. And hearths are features, unlike the torches, which are mobile, so to speak. Hmm. And I know April has done a lot of research on the hearths and the Paleolithic Mm-hmm. Yeah, I mean, that was, um, so in the, in the Paleolithic, we have three main sources of light. So we have uh, torches, which are evidenced through torch wipes and other sorts of things. Uh, and then we have uh, three different kinds of stone lamps in the upper Paleolithic. Uh, and again, those were probably for navigating through uh, dark caves and so on. Uh, but you know, again, it's another source of, of light. And then, of course, um, the campfire. And we assume that while people may have been using it for cooking at different times of day and, and heat treating their flints and so on, it probably was um, a gathering place for people at night. And uh, one of the articles that really inspired both Nan and myself in this work uh, was some work by Polly Wiesner looking at the difference between day talk and night talk um, in a number of different uh, contemporary hunter-gatherer groups and looking at the difference, you know, between what people were doing during the day, which is things like you know, more gossiping and economic stuff and so on and at night they had things that seem to bring people together more songs and stories and that kind of thing. So by inference, um, you know, with all the caveats that involves, um, I started to use that idea a little bit for my understanding of night in the past. Um, but in addition to kind to the, the, uh, examples of lighting and so on that again as you say or maybe you you know not only just for nighttime but darkness more generally but certainly do speak to the to what people would have used at night um 
We have other things. So for instance, um, artifacts that might have a dual purpose. So one one example that we had uh, from uh, Southern Africa was um, was a broom that would be for sweeping during the day, uh, but would also be a witch's mode of transportation at night. So with this, do you find that there are artifacts that you've kind of rethought and or, you know, in every archaeological context, there's sort of these mystery objects where we're not quite sure what they're for. Oh, well, they're definitely ritual in nature, whatever they are. <laughs> I was about to say that. Um, of but, you know, now do, can we connect them to nighttime rituals? Uh, <laughs> That's a good question, because we don't want to give the mistaken impression that this is an object that was used only in one context and only during certain time of the day, because we've already done that with the day. So we mm-hmm. don't want to go there in the sense that we need to keep an open mind and there are multiple uses for the same type of object, but we have to consider that maybe it was used at night, which we have not done before. This, this seems to me like it leads to a whole realm, a new realm of kind of experimental archaeology, sort of taking all these things that we have set ideas about how they were used and function and trying out, trying them out, using them at night, using them in new settings um, to see how that changes their functionality. Mm-hmm. That's a great point. And some of the authors in our chapters have done that in terms of lighting. Erin uh, uh, McGuire, for example, did that with uh, Viking lights and experimental archaeology. And I know Megan Strong is working on another paper on doing that with Egyptian lighting. That that makes me think too, especially when you brought up Egyptian, because I was thinking with the discussion about the Paleolithic. Um, is there a ne- is it necessary? And when I say Egyptian, I really mean like going into say even like you know, pyramids and burial chambers and things like that, where it's always going to be dark in there. Is it necessary for what you're talking about to distinguish between actually the archaeology of the night and the archaeology of darkness? Um, Just because the things that may be used in the night or whatever in the material culture would also be used just in the dark if you're in a cave or some sort of environment like that? Well, I think it maybe goes beyond that. I'm just thinking of a chapter by uh, Jane Baxter, who works on 19th century Bahamian plantations, or 18th and 19th century, I should say, plantations. And um, and one of the things that she talks about in her chapter is how the nighttime actually brings a little a sense of privacy and a sense of freedom to people who uh, to enslaved peoples during this time period. So whereas during the day they're under great surveillance and so on, um, at nighttime they're actually able to move between plantations to visit family, to visit friends, to um, maintain their um, their aspects of their culture, and you know in some cases perhaps you know plot rebellions and that kind of thing. So we're not just focusing on on objects that could be used at night, such as lamps and so on, but but we're also it's it's a much broader thing. So in the sense that you you could only do the kinds of behaviors that she, that she's talking about at nighttime. So it has nothing to do with say being in a dark cave or or something like that, but it's actually the the night itself that pr- provides this affordance. There is a lot of research on the archaeology of darkness, and that is also another 
field that is burgeoning. But darkness is connected to the night, but it's not the same. If you think of northern or very southern latitudes and how nighttime is light, you're still going mm. to do different things and you're still going to have a different signature. You're still going to have a nocturnal footprint, mm. even though it might not be physically dark. Yeah, that's a really good point. All right, that's a good point. I, I should ask uh, Jane Baxter. I know her on uh, I know her on Twitter. I've seen her at conferences. I should ask her if, in reference to this archaeology of the night in the you know thinking about enslaved people and things like that, it just made me think. Especially since we were talking about jazz a little bit before this uh, recording, could jazz instruments and like blues blues music? I mean, it's almost could be considered archaeology of the night because you know it was invented by slaves uh, in the southeast and. They weren't doing this during the day because they were in the fields during the day. So when they went home at night and were around, it seems like this could have been born out of an evening or nighttime Mm -hmm. activity. Well, that's what we want to get people to think about. Right. (laughs) Yes, exactly. (laughs) Nice. Nice. Yeah, I was also thinking about uh, back to the Paleolithic again. I've heard I've heard different things and it'd be interesting to get your take on this. um, April is, you know, like Paleolithic cave art that can, you know, it's really kind of seems to be designed to be viewed because this is how it was created in like a torchlight sort of environment. And when they come into things like, you know, some of the big famous ones like Glasgow and things like that with strobe lights, if they come in with big lights uh, on these things, they don't look as right. They don't look right. (laughs) But you come in there with a torch and they almost move and dance across the the, the thing. So it's interesting to think about. It totally is because, you know, they do try to have as low a light uh, in these caves as as possible, but certainly there'd be a real difference between uh, the kind of light cast uh, from from these stone lamps or from these torches than the ones that they are using, you know, to bring tourists through however low light it's supposed to be, but it changes the colors. And also the flickering of a torch uh, or, or, um, mm. or stone lamp is going to change your your perception of the images too it does you know people write about this quite a bit that it gives this sense that the the images are moving it gives that illusion and i had always read about it and it wasn't until i visited my first cave when um the tour guide uh took out her her flash uh flashlight and tried to emulate that and and it was absolutely incredible where these images did seem to project off um off the uh, off the wall there are other um, things where people have found that if they project uh, light onto certain stones, that it projects a shadow onto the cave wall that then becomes part of the larger um, composition on the panel. So there's all kinds of neat things, yeah, with um, with the use of light. And that was an excellent point you made in your chapter, April, about how some of the panels where you find cave paintings aren't necessarily the flattest or the best, but in terms of other aspects that people were looking mm-hmm. for, that's why those places were chosen. Mm-hmm. It's ma- it's making me actually rethink some things about like uh, uh, like rock art and different rock formations that we have here in the in the in the Great Basin, and then in, and then of course in California. Um, cause I have actually a neighbor that lives in my building and he's blind and I see him in the hallways and he's, you know, he has a dog, but he's often feeling along the walls and he knows what it feels like. And it makes me think, well, could some of these things where people have to go out at night for whatever reason, and it's dark, could some of these tactile things on rocks and near areas really just be so you can find your way around in a moonless cloudy night, 
and, and it's just dark and maybe your torch is out or something like that. But then when you feel all these holes in the rock or you feel these particular lines, you know, you're on the right track. You know, I see we've got you on board, Chris. There you go. <laughs> yeah. It's just really interesting to look at that stuff in that sort of, in that sort of uh, light to not use the wording correctly. Um, but uh, I, I should bring this to a friend of mine. He's Dr. Alan Gold. He's uh, one of the big, rock art experts here in the West coast and in California in the great basin. And he's just studies rock. I'm, I'm interested to get his thoughts on this. Um, and highly recommended book is Carolyn Boyd's white shaman mural. Mm-hmm. If you haven't already seen that. Mm-mm. Okay. All right. Well, we will include that in the show notes for sure. Um, as well, we've only got a few minutes left in this show. So I want to talk about, um, you know, what do you guys have following on with this book? It sounds like you sparked almost a new field of archeology span with people thinking about this. So do you have, I know you guys are going to the SAAs in April. Do you have any conference sessions planned to, you know, talk about things like this or other research that's being specifically looked at to address these questions? Well, I have roped in more people and they are (laughs) Mesoamerican archaeologists. So I will have another co-edited volume coming out on Night and Darkness in Ancient Mexico and Central America with my co-editor, David Reed, who we've known each other from grad school. So he was an easy convert and he's just amazing to work with. So I've got that coming up and that was based on a previous symposium that we put together on this topic. And then, of course, this has just really changed my whole perspective. I'm known as a household archaeologist. I specialize in household archaeology. Well, my bent on this now is nighttime household archaeology. Um, I'm not actually uh, doing anything more on the night at this particular moment. My One of my other research hats is on the archaeology of children, which is another, which is actually how, um, well, I know yeah. your mom and Jane Baxter as well. Uh, so I'm, uh, my session that I'm participating in at the SCAs will be on the archaeology of children. Um, but I'm also working on um, a volume right now with Ian Davidson on how you identify scenes in rock art. What makes a scene? Can one can one figure be a scene mm-hmm. or do you have to have interactions and so on? And again, we're bringing people from all over the world in all different time periods to, um, to address this question. And hopefully that'll be out um, uh, sometime in the summer. Okay. April, do you know George, uh, not George, Jeff Cunner? Uh, I know the name, but. Yeah. He was, he was one of the first people I knew was, was looking at uh, the archaeology of children in reference to flint napping Mm -hmm. and, you know, learning how to make projectile points and stuff. And how can you identify that maybe this was a practice piece? (laughs) Yeah. yeah. Apprenticeship skill, all those kinds of things, especially with lithics, but also with pottery is a huge, huge area. So yeah, we haven't met, but I definitely know the work. Yeah. Excellent. Well, Ladies, this has been fantastic. Um, is there anything you wanted to mention about this book um, that you just that we just didn't ask you that you want to get out on the podcast? I think you should go buy it. <laughs> <laughs> fantastic. On Amazon. Or as, uh, as we, we had another author on one time that said, "Go buy it, burn it, and then buy another copy." <laughs> Only if you do that at night. That's right. But then they should probably write to you about how the illumination of the book changed their experiences of the night. That's yes, true. and measure those true. lumens. Exactly. 
That's right. You know, it'd be really cool to put like a nice chemical into this thing. You know how chemicals burn different colors, so you could really spice up the night if you were to really burn it when you were done. That's that would just be completing the circle, I think. So. All right. So this has been a fascinating podcast, and uh, I think there's a lot more that we could dig into. We could probably have every book uh, author, uh, chapter author for your book actually come on and do their own podcast about uh, different chapters in the book. There's so much to talk about. So um, do we have any final comments regarding uh, regarding this topic and the book, April? Uh, well, one thing I thought was important to mention um, in terms of putting all of this into perspective was that Margaret Conkey, who writes our afterword, um, as a lot of you no, I'm sure, was um, a pioneer in doing feminist archaeology and, and asking questions about gender, about women in the past. And she writes in her afterward that basically what Nan and I have done with this volume is the same kind of thing, that we brought in a whole half of the past that people never thought about. So in the way that people made assumptions about um, the artifacts speaking to men's experiences, uh, and that didn't give us a true, rich understanding of the past, the same way making de uh, default assumptions about artifacts speaking only to the day really limits um, our understanding of people's behaviors. Nice, nice. Excellent. Okay. And I've talked to actually uh, uh, Meg Conkey about some of this stuff over in, when I was over in San Francisco for a little bit. So it's a, it's a fascinating topic. Thank you both so much. We really appreciate being on your show. Yeah, it was so much fun. Yeah, well, it was fabulous having you guys, and we look forward to seeing what you guys come out with next. Thank you. <laughs> so do I. <laughs> Thank you. <laughs> Thanks for listening to the Archaeology Podcast. We hope you enjoyed it. You can provide feedback using the contact button on the right side of the website at www.archaeologypodcastnetwork.com forward slash archaeology. Or you can email chris at archaeologypodcastnetwork.com. Please like and share the show wherever you saw it so more people can have a chance to listen and learn. Send us show suggestions and follow ArcPodNet on Twitter and Instagram. This show was produced by the Archaeology Podcast Network. Opinions are solely those of the hosts and guests of the show. However, the APN stands by their hosts. Special thanks to the band Sea Hero for letting us use their song, I Wish You'd Look. Check out their albums on Bandcamp at seahero.bandcamp.com. Check out our next episode in two weeks, and in the meantime, keep learning keep discovering new things, and keep listening to the Archaeology Podcast Network. Have an awesome day. This show is produced and recorded by the Archaeology Podcast Network, Chris Webster and Tristan Boyle, in Reno, Nevada, at the Reno Collective. This has been a presentation of the Archaeology Podcast Network. Visit us on the web for show notes and other podcasts at www.archpodnet.com. Contact us at chris at archaeologypodcastnetwork.com. Thanks again for listening to this episode and for supporting the Archaeology Podcast Network. If you want these shows to keep going, consider becoming a member for just $7.99 US a month. That's cheaper than a venti quad eggnog latte. Go to archpodnet.com slash members for more info. You've worked hard for what you have. Your money, your assets, your 401k, and home. Isn't it all worth protecting? Nearly one in four consumers have been a victim of identity theft. LifeLock Ultimate Plus helps protect your finances with up to $3 million in reimbursement. LifeLock alerts you to identity threats you might miss. And if your identity is stolen, your dedicated U.S.-based restoration specialist will work to fix it. Let LifeLock help protect what you've worked so hard for. Save 25% off your first year on LifeLock Ultimate Plus at LifeLock.com slash aware. Terms apply. Pulling up to Mickey D's just for drinks? 
Oh yeah, that's me. Nothing extra, just perfection and a straw. Coming in hot for the coldest cups on the block. Because there are drinks. Then there are drinks from McDonald's. Mix things up with any size lemonade or sweet tea for $1.49. Perfect with our classic fries. Price and participation may vary. Cannot be combined with any other offer. Ba-da-ba-ba-ba.